1: wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com
3: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
0: Welcome to Dawn Foster Forever. Uh, This evening we're looking at the life and work of the writer and commentator Dawn Foster who uh, died last year in July uh, at the age of just 34. I'm Kay Biswaz, I'm a critic and I'm the director of Resonance FM. I'm delighted to be joined by James Butler, London Review of Books contributing editor and co-founder of Navara Media. We have Lindsay Hanley broadcaster and author of Estates, An Intimate History and Respectable Crossing the Class Divide, and Gary Young, author of Another Day in the Death of America, A Chronicle of Ten Short Lives, and sociology professor at the University of Manchester. This is the first public talk looking at Dawn's legacy, not only as a journalist and thinker, but as a personality and as a friend. For all of us, it's impossible to look at Dawn from a distance. We were very close to her, close enough to feel frequent pangs of grief at her loss and take up certain roles in the aftermath of her death. Lindsay wrote a wonderful obituary in Jacobin magazine, which Dawn was a regular contributor of. James delivered a beautiful eulogy in the church in South London, Dawn's local church. I gave a speech at The Wake, followed by Gary opening up the floor for people to share their own personal stories of their friendship with Dawn. Though we admired and occasionally worked with her, our relationships run deeper than that. Each one of us loved her dearly. So, following a difficult year for Dawn's friends, we feel it's the right time to talk about her publicly, which is why we're delighted to be here in the London Review Bookshop. All ticket sales from tonight go to the feminist action group, Sisters Uncut. And you will all be delighted to hear that uh, about a grand has been raised from ticket sales tonight. So, uh, well done, Brian. I really want to thank the LRB bookshop and especially Claire and Gail for making this all possible. Uh, Dawn and I spent countless nights here drinking the free wine. Um, often after dawn had been speaking, I mean she was here speaking with you, Lindsay, a couple of times, yeah. and also Zoe williams uh, she was in conversation with uh, for the launch of her book, Lean Out, which you can get maybe behind me there we go um, We had a, an absolutely riotous evening with Trisha lockwood uh, it 's just one of the funniest evenings of my entire life, and you should listen to the podcast of that. There's one event (laughs) where Dawn interviewed a centrist political writer from across the pond, and the LRB unprecedentedly has burnt the tapes. Uh. Never been released. But I say release the tapes, guys. I'm sure there's, like, circulating these, like, basement tapes like Dylan, you know, who knows. Um, But for me, it was in this room that Dawn felt most that she'd made it So I first met Dawn in the coalition years. The Labour opposition were uh, helmed by sclerotic Milibandism. Uh, Me and Dawn met at a conference on feminist economics at the Marx Memorial Library. It's testament to Dawn's personality that every single other one of those speakers got in touch within the hour of us announcing Dawn's death. But she... I first met her and she kind of looked me up and down, completely unimpressed. But then we had a few drinks on that day and then we chatted at a handful of book events and then one day I get a message in my Facebook Messenger inbox and it's a picture of Marxist writer Perry Anderson in black and white saying, I detest pubs and it's on a skateboard. (laughs) It's printed on a skateboard. And all she asked was, when's your birthday? Uh, and from then on, we were friends for life. But I wanted to start with Lindsay, and maybe Lindsay can give us a bit about Dawn's background and upbringing.
2: All right, thanks, Biz. Um, well, uh, I'll start by saying that I often felt like Dawn's nan. I was, felt old enough to be Dawn's nan. I was actually 12 years older than her, but... Um, I would often, whenever I spoke to Dawn, I would often break into stories about life before the internet was invented and life before <laughs> Channel 4 was invented. And it was it was sort of... Um, it became a bit of a shtick between us now. Oh, you know, oh, you're young, you don't know anything about this. But uh, I sort of say that to, to emphasise the fact that, although there was quite a big age difference uh, between us, I kind of... Uh, i kind of almost instantly as soon as i met her kind of almost felt like we were sisters really um kind of sisters in it sounds cheesy but but sisters in sisters in journalism sisters in the the the, the, the cruel world that we'd entered um dawn was from Newport in South Wales um and you know newports an industrial place uh you know there are you know people of note who have come from the Newport area, such as the Manic Street Preachers, who she really didn't like. But, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's coming from South Wales gave Dawn's um, perspective um, a real significance, and one that I connected with very closely because my own family were from South Wales, from, from the Rhondda Valley. Um, and I first noticed her writing, or sort of saw her writing, it took, sat up and took notice of it. Uh, when she was writing for the comments is free section in the Guardian r- around about ten years ago, um, and she wrote frequently about Newport, I thought this is fantastic. Nobody, nobody writes for the Guardian comes from Newport, you know. But but not not just not just the fact of coming from Newport, coming from South Wales. But 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 as time went on, I sort of started quite avidly reading her stuff. And realising that she gradually revealed details about her upbringing that made me realise that nobody gets to do what she was doing from the background that she was describing. Um, you know, we 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 connected then on, on on the email. I sent her an email saying, you know what, I think. I think You know, I think what you're doing is fantastic. It's really, really fresh. And I'm so glad there's somebody else from a council estate who's writing about what it's like being on a, you know, being from a council estate um, and how it alerts you to sort of, uh, you know, how it alerts you to inequalities and how it alerts you to. Um, problems in society that the, the other people, even within the same workplace as us, could, you know, sort of quite comfortably either gloss over or sort of, uh, you know, middle-class plain about it. Um, it was Dawn's um, una- unafraidness, really, to write about the reality of her situation as she entered journalism and as she tried to make her way in it that I felt was really, really brave. Um, one of the things that... Um, one of the things that, uh, that, that that we sort of started talking about immediately the first time we met was how our lives could have got, there was a point in our lives, probably both in our teens, where our lives could have gone one way or the other. And I said to her, uh, you know, probably the first time we met that that, you know, more or less every minute of every day, I think, my life could have gone one way or the other. And I I often think back to the sort of the the point where things could have been very, very different. And she said, yes, I know what you mean. And it was the point at which she she, uh, started to do A-levels. And I said, yeah, yeah, it was when I did A-levels that everything really changed. But then she got a scholarship from her school in, in South Wales, to uh, Warwick University. And I says, oh, well, I never got into Warwick University. But then she told me about the experiences that she had when she went to Warwick University, and this revealed a sort of generational difference. And this is what made me so, so, so... ..so desperate, really, to try and you know, whatever sort of help I could give her just just to try and help in any way because I knew that there was a fundamental generational difference that we could come from similar working-class backgrounds to have already, by the time we reached 16 or 17 or 18, already sort of faced a number of odds uh, to have got to a point of being able to enter higher education, you know, as as working-class... Women from very non-conventional, non-traditional backgrounds. But it was the the fact that because I was 12 years older, I got to go for free. I didn't have to pay. I got a grant. Um, My total loans when I graduated were about £1,800 and I was able to pay them off within two years. Dawn got to Warwick, uh, was given a bursary, but of course, immediately in the act of being given a bursary, you're immediately feeling like you're a recipient and that it's charitable and that, yes, you're there on merit, but it will look, some kind of attention will always be drawn to it. You know, the only thing that I had to do to sort of, I don't know, remind me of where I came from was to go to the office once a term and get a cheque and think, you know, ooh, thanks, Sally, or Local Educational, Educational Authority. <laughs> You know, but, but, but she had this bursary and she got invited to a do for uh, undergraduates who were on bursaries, you know, kind of designed to, you know, for non-traditional students, you know, Warwick's for you too, guys, you know, and she got there, started talking normally in what then, I assume, having met her much later, you know, would have been a, you know, a, a standard Newport accent. And whoever it was, the, the, the senior person, the senior academic um who was talking to us said, Well you're never gonna get anywhere if you if you talk like that. And that was another sort of cleave in in, in our situations, which is I suddenly realised I thought, God, I'm really, really lucky nobody ever said that to me. Because i still talk the way I always did. But she changed it as much as she had to in order to do what she had to do. Not because she felt cowed by it or not because she felt fundamentally humiliating, although I think it is a humiliating thing to say to somebody, she, she just got on with it. So, I mean, going back to, uh, sort of going back to her earlier years, there is nothing, um, you know, in her uh, immediate milieu or um, upbringing that would suggest that enough paths would open up to her to get to do what she eventually did. I think I think she ultimately I think she did it all herself. It was sheer force of will, sheer force of will that, that got her to, to the point where she got to i think as a, as a certain sort of limited number of doors began to open up to her for having gone to Warwick uh, and having been able to move to London, although she didn't immediately start working in journalism when she moved to london it was just it was just the sheer ability of her writing and the fact that she had something, not just that she wanted to say, but that she really, really, really needed to say that pushed her forward. And I really, really, uh, well, you know, respected that doesn't even cover it really, but I really, really admired that. And I, I just knew, just by her very presence and by what she was writing and the kind of reactions that she got to what she was writing, more the negative ones than the... Both the negative and the positive reactions, really, showed me how necessary, how utterly necessary it is to have more people like Dawn from Dawn's background, from different geographical parts of of the UK from you know from peripheral council estates who can still remember what it's like to to write about it as up to have the biggest widest possible audience to write about it as often as possible.
0: I think one of the one of the key reasons why Dawn seeks a job at The Guardian was the writings in the New Labour era uh, from Lindsay and from from Gary. Um, Gary, what was it that made
1: Dawn first stand out for you as a journalist. It was her fearlessness. There was a fearlessness about her which I, uh, I, I really cherish. And actually, this this past week, when the you might have been mistaken for thinking we were living in North Korea, <laughs> and and I've had lots of uh, approaches to you know write things and go, and I'm like no I'm not I'm. If I have capital to spend I'll spend it on a riot. I'm not going to spend it <laughs> on a queen. I'm good. And there is a way of being kind of uh, uh, strategic. And sometimes, actually, really what that is is cowardice, actually. And I count myself in that. i just think I just don't want to... And it wasn't that she wasn't strategic, it's that she wasn't a coward. And I, I remember... The first, and I was just, I wasn't, like, checking my Twitter account there. I was actually, uh, I couldn't remember his name. I just kept thinking, posh name, posh name. Anyway, Tristram Hunt. (laughs) Uh, That she wrote, there was this wonderful line in this piece in the LRB where she talks about Tristram Hunt, a man so lacking lacking in self-awareness that he crossed a picket line to teach a course on Marxism. (laughs) And, And I just thought, that is... A funny and <laughs> devastating, and like proper cruel to the right person, you know, like a good kind of cruelty. And um, and there was there was something in her in her pen because the way that the thing about this North Korea stuff is that it's not new; it's just deeply apparent. But in recent years, we've seen the kind of narrow parameters within which we work and that kind of um, there is real reputational risk when you step outside those parameters when you start to say actually I think this is okay or you know and that goes all the way you know that goes back to talking about Ireland or colonialism or and there's a tradition of that in British journalism and she stood in the finest tradition of that, and actually, um, in, in, a very, in a very different way, well, actually, this all about, she was actually, she was born into it. She was born into that, like, she did have a choice. Lots of people decide they're not gonna do that. But there is that phrase, which a couple of people said to me when I started to do a column, and I was like, oh, you know, I don't know what, what to do with this they so oh, you can be a voice for the voiceless. And I remember running into an Arundhati Roy quote where she said, the, the, uh, it's not that they're voiceless, it's that we haven't heard their voice. And this was her voice. It was an unashamed um, uh, uh, kind of, I'm sure there was fear in there somewhere, but it didn't reach the page, strident woman working class woman who was kind of say well look this is this is how I see this you know and like come get me and um uh and that's that that's a real that's a real example you don't get a better example than that, and the, only the one other thing I'd say and i did kind of allude to this in my, you very kindly talked about me opening up the floor at her wedding. You didn't say I was really pissed at the time. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, my, mother was, uh, my mother was an epileptic and died at 44. And, um, uh, and there was a, a, a quote from an interview I did with John Carlos, who's the, one of the 68 runners who made the Black Power salute, and he said, you're you're born, you don't have any real say in that, and you die, and usually you don't really have a whole lot of say in that, but what matters is what you do when you're here on the planet. And Dawn wasn't on the planet as long as we would have liked. She was on the planet a lot less long than most, but she did what she had to do while she was on the planet. She lived more of a life, made more kind of, um, made more waves, um, strode through more boundaries than most people do who live twice or more as long. And,
0: And James, you saw that passion, like, firsthand. You met Dawn... In London, she was a frequent guest on your radio show.
3: Yeah. It, well, I mean, it's interesting. One of the things to say, I think, at the start is is actually, of course, Dawn and I had met online first. And, you know, I think everyone here will know that Dawn is probably a master of the form um, <laughs> when it comes to Twitter. Um, you know, really you know, extraordinary, open, um, sharp to the right people. Um, and kind and interested in the right people as well. Um, And I think one of the things that has become clear since she died is how real that digital connection is for many people, and it's worth saying it was real to her as well. Um, Those friendships are not kind of second-rate, they're not, um, you know, they're not second-class. So actually we had connected kind of online um, during the student protests, and then especially the kind of, you know, gradually failing anti-austerity movement afterwards. you know, to which she felt kind of very committed. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I was running um, Navara FM, as as was then, which was at the time a very, very small operation, um, a very kind of ramshackle operation. And I sort of invited her on. I think she's actually going to say no. But she said yes, and she came, and she was, you know, uh, charming and sharp and, and and all the things like you know, one wanted her to be. But the thing that struck me at the time, and the thing that was true and that remained true since, is that she would go, you know, basically anywhere. That, you know, a young left-wing person was doing a thing that they wanted someone who had some connection to the mainstream to come and give it some stardust, she'd go and do it. And often it would be quite a thankless task. Um, and it was extraordinarily impressive and it was extraordinarily kind. Um, and so we connected, after that, we became friends after that, and I. I one of the earliest interactions we had, I looked this up actually on my way here today, I had posted something on I'd been, I'd been reading, I think I actually probably bought it here, um, Lichtenberg's Waste Books, and this is like a collection of aphorisms that Lichtenberg d- discovers. In the Lichtenberg figure, which is when lightning strikes something, it gives these amazing kind of tree-like things. Anyway, so he keeps, you know, he's an aphorist writer, he keeps this notebook and he writes in it, I ceased in the year 1764 to believe that one can convince one's opponents with arguments printed in books. It is not to do that, therefore, that I've taken up my pen, but merely so as to annoy them and to bestow strength and courage on those on our own side and make it known to the others that they have not convinced us. And... I, I put this quote online, she took it and ran with it, and it you know, ended up, I think, on, on every social media, kind of able to... And, you know, I, I feel very ambiguous, actually, about that line. I kind of... I do think arguments work, and I do think they're important. I don't think it actually does matter. Um, but I also see the other side to it. I also see the, the importance of being able to stand up and say, actually, no, you haven't convinced me, and I don't care. Um, and it, it's an important part of her journalistic work to be the person who says, actually... I don't agree with elite-led consensus opinion. Um, I don't care that everyone in N1 thinks that um, Corbyn should have flung himself off a building three months after um, winning the the leadership um, because she came from somewhere else. Mm. Um, You know, we would often be at functions together and, you know, would remark that it was crazy that the two of us would be the least posh people in the room. Now, for her, that's not a surprise, but I'm, you know middle-class background, my parents both teachers, you know, I didn't go to private school, that shouldn't make me like the least posh person in a room where the national conversation is conducted. Because one of the things Dawn knew, and knew very well, is that when people talk about politics, what they're often talking about is political media, and therefore understood the importance of the role that she played. That people increasingly don't talk about politics in terms of ...local associations, about their tenants... ...you know, tenants and residents associations... ...they don't talk about it in terms of their trade unions... ...they talk about it in terms of what they watch on the TV... ...so she she knew she had that role... ...and I think it's a really important one. Just like a couple of things to say... ...about the journalistic work I think that that are important. One is that she started off as a social affairs journalist... ...and like that's actually also quite an unusual trajectory... to, ...to end up going into opinion from most opinion writers decide from day one they have something that that their voice should be heard in Mm, public mm. and they should go in um, at the top. She actually went out and met people and talked about their lives and what they went through. And this is not something that's necessarily valued in British journalism at the moment. Um, And I think it's worth standing up for. It gave the columns that she wrote later a depth and a background that wasn't just personal experience, Mm -hmm. but it was based on... Coming from that personal experience and saying, well, I should talk to people in these situations mm. and find out what they think. The other thing that I've been thinking about in the year since she died is, you know, what, what it means to be a, political, a politically committed journalist today. Because there's been lots of kind of guff talked about objectivity, impartiality, things like that, especially in, in the last, well, not just the last week when we've been in a sort of collective national breakdown. But, um, but, but particularly about kind of the role of, of, of media today. And one of the things she understood was that to be a politically committed journalist didn't mean necessarily forgetting that your own side had its share of idiots <laughs> and um, you know, people that you weren't particularly uh, convinced by. But it meant being clear about your commitments. It meant being clear about saying, I am in my 30s and barely scraping together living in London, it is mad that, that I have worked at, you know, one of the most successful papers in Britain and mm-hmm. I worry about where my rent is going to mm-hmm. come from. Mm-hmm. Um, it, is, it is crazy that, like, the political direction of this paper is set by a tiny number of people who have increasingly little contact with the real world. And from there goes the nation. Um, the other thing to say about the journalistic work is, you know, Dawn was a chronically ill person, Right? That meant increasingly that lots of her work was occasional. It was stuff that was responding to the present moment. She wrote one book, and it's a good book. It's a solid intervention. It's an important intervention. Most books are irrelevant a year after they're written. This one isn't. I know that she talked and thought about a book on housing a lot. And I just think it's mad. I think it is absolutely mad that the structure of journalism, the structure of publishing in this country means that she was never secure enough to write it. It's crazy. Uh, And we're deprived. We're deprived politically of what would have been an important book. I think it's something to just bear in mind. I mean,
0: James makes such an important point there, which is, whilst Dawn, in, in my view, is the paramount chronicler of austerity Britain and the voice of the housing crisis, she kind of couldn't afford to be a specialist. She would have to... Do broadcast as well with some horrible people on like Murdoch-owned broadcast networks. She would write reviews, book reviews for people like myself and for you know other publications. But there was a richness in all of her output, be it the very skilled journalism that she did, as well as the sort of intellectual side and also the popular side. She loved popular culture. But I, I'd like to ask what the, the panel think about Dawn as, like, an intellectual, as a thinker, as a reader. I know that she, she, she blitzed through libraries' worth of books and would listen to albums and watch box sets. I mean, she spent... I'm amazed she got any sleep
1: at any time. She did. <laughs> but, but Dawn is the intellectual. That's what I'd like to, to know about. I mean, I think she's, you know, like one of Gramsci's organic intellectuals, so I think that she speaks not of her experience, but through her, through her experience to a larger canvas, and rearranges the canvas that you thought you could see. And, and I guess part of the fearlessness, really, coming back to that notion is the thing of thinking this is what I want to say, and I'm not gonna pass it. I will I will contextualize it, but I I will I will have my say. And so many intellectual interventions are passed to within an inch of their relevance, an inch of their kind of um, capacity to actually do anything. And she, she intervened in order to change. Not, I mean, not always, but often enough that one could talk about that as a kind of, her as being a committed journalist. What is the thing that I think needs to be said in this moment that other people aren't saying, as opposed to how can I look as clever and funny as possible? which so many people think is their brief. This is true.
0: And it's. I, th- I feel that Dawn, Dawn's brain kind of never stopped, be it in her output, but also in, like, friendships as well. And I think we all were very lucky to get to know Dawn, like, on a personal level. And I felt that something that may be lost in some of the... Uh, kind of online conversations how warm Dawn was as as a person how much we enjoyed being in her presence. As I mentioned earlier uh, we both shared a crippling addiction to wine so we would uh, (laughs) free wine only Uh, Yeah, but we, we used to kind of turn up to events in what passes for like cultural London and we would just meet lots of people and stand in rooms but we'd get some bizarre invites. Like, we, we got invited to the Christmas drinks of a right-wing free-market think tank. Uh, you know, these people, like, priapic for, like, Pinochet. Um, <laughs> and it was fascinating just seeing the room move, like, slowly around Dawn because she was kind of holding court. She was incredibly charming, even though she fundamentally disagreed with the outlook of every single person in that room. which kind of a weird collection of, like, spotty teenagers and, like, dead-eyed, sort of bow-tie-wearing geriatrics. Um, but they were charmed by her. They were interested in why she cared, because they lost the, the kind of ability to care themselves. So, yes, Dawn is a person, and Dawn's warmth, I'd love to... No, a bit about. I mean, like she she met your family, and she, you know.
2: Well, the first time, the first time we met. Mm. The first time we met, um, I was with I was with one of my children um, who was about one at the time. Um, first time we met, we we were both on. Uh, I don't know what was it a junket? <laughs> Let's call it a junket. But no, no, we were both doing talks at um, at the same time in Bristol, and we were both staying in quite a snazzy hotel, and I was all. kind of like, living the dream and, uh, <laughs> and it was all sort of like very very chee chi and very nice and I said to Dawn "Wow, well you know have you got any time we're going to be here at the same time she said well let yeah let's have some breakfast so um so we met in the breakfast room you know which is always a bit kind of awkward anyway because you've got the whole bacon and Whatever situation going on, and um I was with my daughter who was one because she needed to come with me because she wouldn't she wouldn't go to sleep without me. Doesn't like still doesn't like it now, but. So, so anyway, my husband had to sort of look after, after our daughter while I was doing this talk. And um, so I met Dawn and she came and sat with us for breakfast. And then, and then Erin, my daughter, just kept flinging her breakfast at Dawn. <laughs> and she's like, ah, don't worry about this. I'm, I'm good with kids. She's, Didn't she have like eight, eight brothers and sisters, something like that?
0: Um, yes, she did. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. So Dawn was very, very used to having food flung at that's but perhaps not in this kind of not, not in this kind of situation. But then, you know, we just started chatting about all the people that, that we knew and all the people that we sort of mutually hated as well and <laughs> mutually loved. And uh and it turns out it turns out that Dawn and my daughter had the same birthday, which was Monday just gone, twelfth yeah. of September. And you know, from, from that moment, she always asked... We, You know, we mainly communicated by text message because because I lived in Liverpool, she lived in London, she was always very busy, I was always, you know, kind of half-dead. And she, we would always text each other. And She would always ask, she would always ask about my children, she would always ask about Erin on her birthday. And it was my daughter's birthday just on this Monday and I just... She got an electric guitar for her birthday, my daughter and I just saw something in the spirit in, of dawn in her the way she just she just took it and she just immediately just I don't know just crunched it she, sh- she said, "Mommy, what's shredding?" and I said I can show you what shredding is and and you know she proceeded to shred she shredded she shredded really really well but no no she was she was immensely kind to my children several times we spoke at green Man, Green Man festival in Wales together and I always went with the whole with the whole crew together and um, you know she would give the, she would give them colouring to do and she would help them with their colouring and she showed one day she drove what well, one green man she drove down to Wales in a camper van with her friend Tupon is it his Tupan. Oh right yeah but anyway she drove she drove she drove to the camper van and she was incredibly busy, you know, as you say, making a living in every moment that she had that she was well. She was due on stage, she, we were doing a talk about housing, uh, but she had an hour before the talk and, in which she had to write an article in the green room while, while my children were doing colouring. Next round I said, oh, I said, you know, Peter, Peter's my, my son, Peter really, really wants to see your camper van, he just loves camper vans. And she gave me the keys and she got two to show Peter <laughs> around the camper van. Uh, and it was just, I don't know, it, it's, it's, it, it you know, it, it's... You know, it, it's tricky thinking and talking about talking about things like that. But but you know, like so few people in so few people in this crazy work, crazy literary world that you know are just bothered about the everyday life that you have outside. You know, what are you working on? You know,
0: James, you're you're the same generation as Dawn, and I feel that when Dawn started out with her writing and journalism, she was, I think, the only kind of working class voice within the mainstream. Now, I feel that there's been a shift since then. I think that Dawn played a key role in that shift. We do hear more authentic representation of working class voices, certainly feminist voices, voices from uh, what what Dawn would consider, you know, a socialist perspective. Do you think she was aware of that role that she played? And if she was, what are the kind of consequences? Where,
3: where will where will that lead? Well, I mean, one thing she would have done is rolled her eyes at you for suggesting that she played an influential role in sort of changing people's eyes <laughs> um, because she couldn't bear uh, people complimenting her like that. But it is nonetheless the case. Um, and it's worth, like, I, I guess... Um, maybe it's worth picking up on, you know, as you say, like, it, it feels like a short period. But actually, if you think about what news looked like a decade or, or, or kind of decade and a half ago. If you think about even what the politics of, say, the trade unions looked like a decade or a decade and a half ago. Certainly the politics of well, the Labour Party's return to its politics a decade and a half ago, unfortunately, but, you know, it yeah. can change. Um, so things are, you know, things do look broader. And, you know, part of that is her willingness to be out there and, and willingness to, to to lead that conversation. but. What she would say if she were here, I think, is to point out that you know, uh, individuals don't, don't change things on their own, right? And that one of the reasons that she would say yes to things is that they would get her on to comment about you know, kind of post-riot changes, about um, you know, whether there's, you know, when there's been a protest, she would know, say yes to all the paper reviews because she wanted to be the person to say, actually, this is really good. I'm on these people's sides. They have a point. Um, and that's quite thankless work. Like, uh, I don't know, I, it's quite a rarefied thing to have sat there on like Sky News at like hell o'clock in the morning um, with some sort of you know, weird sociopath from uh, sort of a libertarian think tank <laughs> telling you that you know, maybe the state should be abolished and the Fabians run everything. <laughs> and to keep your work, cl- you know, and, and to manage to kind of charmingly roll your eyes and then make a coherent point. I'm not very good at it. She certainly was. Mm. Um, that kind of stuff matters. Um, but I also want to touch on something that that kind of I think both Gary and Lindsay are alluding to, which is that it's quite rare to find journalists who are not only interested in self-advancement. Um, and it's one of the things that I was suggesting with of her willingness to go on shows that would not get you a commission at the new york times or get you might do these days Um, (laughs) um, or or that that you know or or that won't kind of advance your you on your way to your kind of bbc full part documentary or whatever Um, or you know or indeed to treat people as if they're human beings which Mm. is also extremely rare um in journalism and you know and maintaining that quality is quite difficult because right? you know, like either people who have that quality either wash up out of journalism entirely, which is a very respectable thing to do, by the way. I rate leaving journalism. It's often a good idea. There are some people I wish would. Um, <laughs> but to maintain the kind of openness and interest in people um, while doing as much work and as much kind of public-facing work as she did, I think is extraordinarily difficult. The other thing I was saying you know, before we came on is that we mustn't make her sound like a saint. Um, because one of the things I loved about Dawn is like her extraordinarily comprehensive, you know, psychic Rolodex of gossip, um, and it was a very important thing. Um, and it's an important thing because there's lots of people who you know who walk from one job into another, right at the top of these worlds, who all know each other already and know the background of everyone involved and know all the secret little stories and know who to be nice to and who not to be nice to, who to stand away from, who to stand near. Um, I think the act of actually passing that on to other people who are as fucking clueless in... I can't, can I say that? We're being recorded. Whatever. Um, in, in um, I don't know, the kind of horrifying back rooms of Labour Party conference or something like that. <laughs> uh, that is a genuinely generous thing to do. There should be more of us who do it more regularly. Maybe the other thing to say, I don't want to whack on, but is something that distinguished dawn from a lot of us and i think a lot of uh kind of millennial journalists is in you know the last few years of her life is the rediscovery of her faith and this is extremely extremely important to her and you know one of the things i think gary identified about like the capacity to go out there and speak truth um you know it's often put as being like as not having the kind of comms brain that lots of people on the left have, right? To think, like, not, 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 you know, how can I say something that's true, but how can I either say something that will convincingly get me invited back on this show or um, is as manipulative as possible of the people who are listening to me? Um, and, you know, like, I'm ambivalent about both those things. You know, they are professional strategies. Um, to have something outside of mere political contingency on which your pursuit of politics is founded, lends a particular strength to the way that you pursue those politics. And this is a very dicey area, I think, particularly in Britain. Um, you know, I, I have very complicated feelings about it. But one of the things to highlight is that recently there's been a turn in reactionaries rediscovering their faith. Dawn's rediscovery of her faith was not a reactionary turn. For her, like, faith and justice and the pursuit of politics were a seamless garment. Like the one informed the other. It was extraordinarily important to her. Um, I should say also that like the process of that rediscovery came after Grenfell and those two things were also kind of deeply interconnected in her work. Um, weirdly for me it's the kind of thing I that, that one would think would shake your faith. Um, or your optimism that justice might one day be delivered. Um, But it didn't for her. It led to a rediscovery. And I think, you know, it's one of the things that is important to stress um, about the way in which she was working in in the last few years is that it became ever more kind of central to the way she was thinking about things. And to point out that it's very easy in Britain to think faith is the province of reactionaries. It's harder in the US, it's harder in other places. Um, It's not, and it wasn't for her.
0: And the community developed in, uh, in, within Dawn's faith played such an important role in lockdown when Dawn was uh, shielding. There was constant messages going through the WhatsApp groups, there were deliveries to doors, there was meetups when, you know, it became possible to meet up and go for walks. The faith community played such an important role in the last 18 months of, of, of Dawn's life. Before we open up to questions, I kind of want to focus on this joy again. So Dawn Dawn comes from a very difficult background. She is a journalist primarily around social affairs at a time where her country is in crisis. But she still found time to just be joyous. Uh, She... She would say yes to kind of any media appearance. We, um, all of you losers in this room know that Newsnight is at 10.30 every weeknight. We got a call at Dawn's after a long and very boozy dinner at about 5 to 10 one evening saying, Dawn, will you come on Newsnight and speak about Princess Diana? She's like, yeah, sure. Slaps on some makeup. Cab takes her there, and we're still in her flat, and we're watching her, kind of pretty, pretty half cut, but give a barnstorming defence of Diana in part. She um, hones in on the important aspects of, of Diana because she stands in solidarity with women treated terribly by authority figures. And, you know, she's easily the most interesting guest that they could possibly have. And she did it completely effortlessly. At about four in the morning, we're drinking in Soho, and I'm like, I need to go home. I'm tired. I need to sleep. And also like, I'm just going to stay up for a couple of hours because I'm doing Good Morning Britain with his Morgan. So you're just like, OK, fine, see you later. And again, like, utterly takes him down, his sort of ridiculous, pompous, like, attitude. Um, it was all effortless. And I would like, before we go to the audience, to hear one moment of joy when you were in Dawn's presence. Anyone can go first.
1: <laughs> um, I remember being at um Guardian Christmas party and Dawn leading a... It was a comment party. And it was winding down and Dawn was like, fuck it, we're going. We're going, like, I know another pub. like, And we were like this kind of... Um, <clears throat> Band of brothers and sisters kind of trailing all the way, you know, people falling off, you know, Ubers coming and picking people up. So there were just about three or four of us when we got to this pub, which was fucking rough. <laughs> and the first thing I saw was a man's bare <laughs> I Kind of lifted him out. And Dawn Do- was like, we're here. <laughs> you know, she didn't like, I was like, "Whoa, that's and don't, she didn't like didn't blink, you know?" It's like, "Great, we've arrived." <laughs> <laughs>
3: I have a I have a I have a uh, one that is characterized by distance actually rather than being in her presence, and it's the it's the Scottish story which Biz will have heard me tell, <laughs> uh, <laughs> some of you will have heard me tell it as well in the Cameron era. <laughs> I went on holiday to Scotland. It's a very remote bit of Scotland, but there is <laughs> no phone signal at all. And I had tweeted something when I, I left. I tweeted something like, oh, British politics really cannot get more ridiculous in my absence. I'll be glad of me really not having... Then the pig story happened. <laughs> which, of course, for those of you who, who have maybe blotted out that bit of British political history, was when it came to light in a, an Isabel Oakshot and... Um, What's his name? Uh, Evil uh, Lord, Lord, Lord Yeah. Um, authored book about David Cameron that at university he had fucked a pig's head. Um, We've all been there, James. <laughs> <laughs> Oxford, darling. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, well, um, no comment. Mm-hmm. We will pass lightly over over my own checkered history uh, evenings like this.
1: <laughs> I,
3: I, of course, have no mobile sticking on, you know, uh, you know, we, we were climbing up a, a lovely kind of remote Scottish mountain where I get a kind of bar, uh, just text signal, I get a text message, this is a little bit before everyone had smartphones, She just said, James, in all cats, James, James, David Cameron, fucked. <laughs> <laughs> She'd been too pissed and too excited <laughs> and too happy at the whole thing <laughs> to bother finishing the text. <laughs> And so I'm in this kind of extraordinarily remote bit of Scotland, and I am trying to figure out for the life of me, I have no idea what has happened. You know, I think, has the government collapsed? And so, you know, I assume, you know assume, three days later, we're driving back into, and my phone just sort of stops working because I have so many, you know, tweet notifications coming in. Um, But I will never forget, and I can picture exactly how happy she would have been when this happened, and the need to tell me, despite the fact that I was in, you know, a remote peak in Scotland. If only the government had fell because of the pig's head, but uh, (laughs) it is exactly the kind of joyous moment uh, that I cherish.
0: Any any poor
3: sign stories?
2: (laughs) (laughs) No poor sign stories. But I wanted to say before my anecdote, which can never match that one, Um, I just wanted to, I just wanted to add really is, is that the reason I found Dawn's writing and Dawn's presence in, in the world and, you know, in the world that we, you know, the sort of professional world that we both inhabited, so incredibly refreshing and vivifying was the fact that she saw absolutely no um, conflict and, and indeed saw the very point of being a socialist was to, was, was to make sure that everybody got as much fun as possible. You know, what's the point? What's the point of fighting? What's the point of fighting for socialism if it's not going to cause more fun? You know, if it's not going to <laughs> cause more joy, I think her um, the extreme difficulties that she experienced as, as a child and an adolescent, which I didn't really touch on before, you know, she, she spent periods in care, had a really awful, awful, um, uh you know um uh, situation at home where, when her mum remarried and so on as i said lots of siblings that as the oldest she was often just handed them to help to bring up all those sorts of things i i, th- I think that gave her a, a sense that basically everything's absurd everything's absurd and therefore everything has the potential to be funny and she did find everything funny and i found that absolutely brilliant and refreshing um but the, the, the one the one a thing that that I remember that, that keeps making me laugh now is just the image of her. I think it was the second time that we spoke a green man together. Uh, I, w- I was with all my family again, and we had we'd been camping, and we had all our bags because we had to go straight to the train station at Abergavenny after after doing the talk. And so we had all our bags in the tent with us, uh, in in sorry in the green room tenty thing. So we had we had rucksacks, we had rucksacks, we had bags full of nappies, we had God knows what. I had all my stuff. We had you know toiletry spilling out out of all these linen bags and so on, and. Um, a very kind runner at Green Manor had offered to uh, get us a, a golf buggy at, at, at these festivals. If you're know, if you sort of on that side of the team, <clears> you get to have a golf buggy sometimes to take. So anyway, they got a golf buggy and we were sticking the pram and everything on the golf buggy and sticking the kids on the golf buggy and all these millions of spilling over linen bags on the golf buggy. And, uh, and as the golf buggy took off, we've been talking to Dawn, and this was raining as well. As the golf buggy started to run off, all, all of my linen bags started falling off the golf buggy as it was going down towards the train station. So my, my abiding image of, is of uh, Dawn running after me with all this stuff and me going, Dawn, get me notebook. It's got my important thoughts in it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm glad that happened.
0: <laughs> Fabulous. right? My, my, own, my own key moment is we are there in a BBC building. Dawn's on this week. She's just completely taken them to the cleaners. Andrew Neal, GB News' Andrew Neal is not there, so he's replaced by GB News' Simon McCoy on the BBC. And we are eating crisps out of a filing cabinet with a drunk Michael Portillo. <laughs> and we just sort of look at each other and then ourselves laughing (laughs) where how did we get here? (laughs) this sort of eccentric man in a bow tie (laughs) is eating like terrible m&s crisps and drinking like campo via wine uh, that's been there for like years horrible and then liz kendall comes up to us and says does anyone fancy a nightcap and you're like this is weird we must go home now um so i'm gonna open it up to the audience i'm sure there are questions we'll probably have about 10 minutes of questions 10 minutes question, so I would like a question preferably from a woman or non-binary person first which is what Dawn taught me to do at Q&As. So, has anyone got a question? What would you say are some of your favourite writings of hers? Are
2: there any particular pieces or essays that really stuck
0: with you? The question for the people listening at home is what are our favourite writings of Dawn's that stand out?
1: There were two Um, takedowns make them sound like hit jobs, but there were two, one was the one on Tristan Hunt, which really did just take the piss out of him. It's like, this is how fucking ridiculous these people are. It wasn't just about him. Uh, And the other one was um, about Mar Ferguson. And it wasn't like her best writing, but it was just a very clear, evisceration of his bullshit and um, uh, yes, those would be my two.
0: Linz, do you have a favourite that stands
2: out? Um, Yeah, I've got a couple of I've got a couple of favourites. Yeah, yeah, the the, the one is about school holiday uh, hunger that she wrote for The Guardian, uh, which was extraordinary for being incredibly uh, raw and sad, but also completely Sane and well-discussed and contextualised, all at the same time, and it could only have been written by somebody who had experienced it themselves. I'm not saying that somebody who had experienced it themselves would aut- would automatically write a good piece about it, but she did. And uh, uh, two two others come to mind actually. One is the, a piece, a long piece she wrote about free schools for the for the LRB which was a fantastic, again, takedown take down of the free schools movement. Um, and, uh, you know, and a defence of, and a defence of, of, of state education. Um, and also a, a piece that she wrote about mindfulness <laughs> uh, that, that, that was really, really good. It's kind of, of a piece with Lean Out, really. We, you know, Lean Out, you know, is about, you know, these daft corporate bozos, you know, saying, you know, individuals take it all on yourself, you know. And mindfulness, you know, her sort of discussion of mindfulness was was the same thing, which is that, you know, i try, you know, I took what I thought was good advice, tried that, you know, I was experiencing some issues, tried this. Um, you know, this thing is a joke. You know, this, this, this thing is a joke and, uh, you know, what are we all doing going around trying to be mindful when we live in this totally nutty society?
0: They're, they're all brilliant pieces, and uh, especially the <coughs> London Review of Books piece uh, where she made the front cover, the Free Schools piece, alongside the wonderful Jenny Turner. She was so proud of that that she uh, someone gave her a framed copy of it and it was uh, in her house, in her living room, and, you know, it was wonderful. James, what about you?
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, so for me, there, there are loads, but um, two, two that I would single out, Um, One is uh, a a kind of piece she wrote for um, the wonderful Rebecca Johnson's food blog, um, and Rebecca now has her book, which I imagine is... uh, Small Fires. Small Fires, which I imagine is here somewhere, and it's very, very good. Um, But it's a piece about tin sardines um, and uh, the memories they evoked for her. Um, It's a genuinely extraordinary and, and beautiful piece. Um, I'll see if I can dig it out and put it online um, somewhere. It must still be online somewhere. Um, uh, uh, and it's just, it exemplifies exactly many of the things we've been talking about tonight, which is that the, you know, the, 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 there are experiences that happen outside of the very narrow circle of per- people who get to write about them. And unless you've had them, you can't write about them. Um, uh the other one that has been on my mind actually as I was thinking about what I maybe wanted to say this evening was just an interview with her um, about her kind of rediscovery of her faith, which I found so touching and so complicated person is someone who was raised Catholic, um, but so sincere um, and so kind of brave for a journalist in Britain to write. Um, that, you know, I think, it's, I think it's well worth reading. I think the ability to undertake that kind of sincerity in public is actually a very rare talent. Um, <coughs> uh, I certainly envy it.
0: Um, Yeah, the the wonderful audio interview is on Alex Doherty's podcast, Politics, Theory, Other, and it's under Love Thy Neighbour. And it's just a beautiful 45 minutes if um, you're interested in the subject matter. My uh, own personal favourite, I'm biased. Um, I got a text during lockdown and Dawn was like, biz, can I write about the (laughs) X-Files? And I was like, "Uh, OK, it's 2021. (laughs) But still, Um, and she weaves in her love of the x-files which she watched every single episode in like a week on lockdown and she just got really into it and she links that into a conversation around positivism which is like a form of south american marxism <laughs> and it's the most elegant beautiful weaved piece that she again just like knocked out because she knew she knew exactly how to fuse these two kind of disparate situations together so that the reader that might not care about either a the x-files or b south american marxism will be drawn into this really really strong argument arguing for a bit more kind of intrigue in the world of politics so i i loved that piece um okay should we move on to another question do we have other questions would the panel um, perhaps like to share um, an example of one of their favourite bollockings
1: that they received?
0: <laughs> <laughs> the question from the floor is: Can the panel share their favourite bollockings from Dawn? Is bollockings a legitimate word to use on the LLB podcast? I'm sure I don't it know is. Why are asking me? <laughs> <laughs> uh, does anything spring to mind?
3: Uh, Yes, but uh, most of them I won't share. Um, One was uh, I was there, but it wasn't directed at me. We were both on um, a a YouTube show, um, which was about, uh, I think it was nominally about Brexit. Um, (laughs) It was in the brief period in which the DUP had national relevance in British politics. and said presenter, who also remained nameless because he has greatly improved since, um, couldn't pronounce Sinn Fein and uh, uh, believed Arlene Foster was an MP. Uh, and as soon as the show cut um, for a break, uh, that extraordinary tongue. Do you know anything about Irish politics? <laughs> um, and that—that, in that, my mind, um, is a question that ought to be directed more widely at the British left, um, incapacity to realise that there is a colony on the doorstep, um, battles and intrigues to this day. But it was a—it was a classic sort of, uh, uh, sort of, shocked face, um, which. If, if you know, anyone who knew Dawn would know perfectly well that expression, as if you had said something so catastrophically stupid um, <laughs> that she was amazed that you hadn't burrowed yourself into the ground out of shape.
2: Uh,
3: any bollockings either to you or witnessed?
2: I, ne- I never got a, I never got a verbal bollocking, but I got I got the look. <laughs>
0: And Sir Digby Jones got that look um, <laughs> Which you can see Which became a very popular meme Dawn just side eyeing
1: Yeah, yeah I, I didn't get But I, I feel like I missed out <laughs> yeah. you, wouldn't you wouldn't
2: want one They
0: were a sight to behold um, I'm thinking potentially Final question Who wants to give the final question Could be anyone Young women This is a question about Dawn's cat, Raymond Williams. Um, Dawn got Raymond uh, about six years ago. He is currently living his best life in Scotland, not in the hated England, um, with um, Lucy. Um, And uh, I saw a video of Raymond today. He's very happy. He was the only... um, Public figure apart from Frank Camoje, who could pull off a bow tie, I know that about him. He was named after Raymond Williams because I suppose maybe Lindsay, you, you, you have uh, an, an idea, but my thinking is Dawn loved reading Raymond Williams, uh, the great Welsh thinker. There is a link between Wales and intellectualism, but also his understanding of culture. And this is the thing: this is what made Dawn kind of unique on. I would consider her cohort, is that she actually cared about culture. You know, she'd watch television and enjoy it. She loved Derry Girls and Inside Number Nine. She loved laughing. She, um, she would, you know, intensely listen to music, but popular music. And I think what Raymond Williams, and then after Raymond Williams, Stuart Hall, understood was that culture and politics have fused on a level. You can make a political difference by using, I suppose, the cultural landscape to push your arguments, which Dawn did so successfully. Um, And then you try and meet, you know, a handful of other people on the left in the media and you ask them, like... What your favourite song is? They don't have that. They might have listened to a Bob Dylan album that their dad put on in the car. Seeing these, you know, people attempt to DJ at Labour conference and they're just basically asking James, like, make us a playlist, James. Make me look cool. Um, do you have any other thoughts on Raymond Williams and the cat?
2: Uh I think it's a lovely name for a cat. But 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 <laughs> as far as the actually call, you know, going as far as to call your cat Raymond Williams, I think I think it's a perfectly done thing to do uh, and a brilliant thing to do and uh, I, th- I think you put it absolutely perfectly is that she, when she read Williams and when she read Stuart Hall and when she uh, read and, and wrote about and, and met um, you know, people like Doreen Massey and um, uh, Danny Dorling and read things like The Uses of Literacy by Richard Hoggart, she absolutely felt connected to them and enthused about them because she was an enthusiast you know, all these things about, you know, like, kind of write about the X-Files, you know, like, make me a playlist, all these things were done in an absolute spirit of enthusiasm. Enthusiasm and, and, and absorption, you know, she really was, she really was like a sponge. And why not call your cat Raymond Williams? You know, it's better than Tingle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because we are in the London Review bookshop, I'm going to read something from Dawn. I found in a notebook recently a page entitled Brilliant Book Ideas by Dawn Foster (laughs) The Big Book of Groove Armada (laughs) Facts Papa Roach Colouring Book Half of Tori Amos's lyrics (laughs) Pop-up Sex Book Dancing on the Grave of the Hacienda (laughs) Getting Off with Sade, an 80s memoir and the final one Bob Hoskins' sex manual, it's good to talk in brackets and then have sex. <laughs> I would like to thank our panel, Gary Young, Lindsay Hanley, James Butler, I'm Craig Vizels, and thank you, Dawn Foster. Dawn Foster forever. Thank you.
3: Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.